Genesis chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 8 through 19. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19. And uh, before we uh, consider this text, let's take a moment and pray and ask for the Lord's grace and help together. Father, would you um, attend to the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your spirit? With the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine for a moment that you had an extremely wealthy friend who needs to go away on business for a while. And while he's gone, he's asked you to look after his house and, you know, all the things involved, pick up his mail, put out his trash, and all the various things one needs looking after when they're away from home. And so he gives you a a house key. He's not sure when he's going to be back, but it ends up being quite some time when it comes to it. And for a little while, uh, you do just precisely what he's asked you to do. And then over time, though, you know, he's gone for a while. You, you begin to grow more comfortable at his house and admittedly a little more curious. So you begin to explore a little. You go into his garage. He's got a, a 67 Corvette in the garage with the keys hanging up right there next to the garage door. Eventually, your, your exploring takes you into his bedroom where you find some very nice clothes and some... Um, Luxury sunglasses, I don't know what brands there are, but uh, you find a couple of Rolexes, I do know those brands, um, and, 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 and eventually you grow so comfortable in this house and with all that's there that you actually begin to borrow some of your friend's items without asking, you begin wearing those sunglasses. He obviously you know, doesn't care for them, he didn't take them with him on his travels. The same thing with the watch, you grab one of those Rolexes, you begin to wear it. After all, you can just just put it back when he contacts you about the date of his return, right? Eventually, you start to think about that car. I mean, a car like that, everyone knows it needs to be driven. It's not good for it to just sit there for a long time. It needs to be driven. So you begin to take it for a spin every now and again, and uh, every now and again begins eventually to be regular, even daily drives. Eventually, it's what you drive for your daily commute, and that while wearing his sunglasses and, and Rolex. And you're just making yourself right at home with all your friend's stuff. Now imagine driving that Corvette and wearing those sunglasses and that watch back to your friend's house one night after work. Who's the very last person you'd hope to see as you're coming up the driveway? Last week we began our time looking in Genesis chapter 3 where we witness the tragic fall of our first parents, and thus our fall too as their children. We saw that their, vo- their fall involves succumbing to a number of, of horrific deceptions and sinful desires, believing God to be narrow-hearted and unworthy of our trust, believing that sinning against God and transgressing against His commands would actually lead to an exalted life, a higher life, a a happier life, that it would lead to humanities reaching the status of God ourselves. In other words, in our fall, we sought to dethrone God, to de-God God and set ourselves up as God in His place. But this morning we turned to see our first parents encountering the last person you'd want to meet after seeking such a high position. 
humanity sees God, as it were, coming up the drive. And as you would expect, the Lord does indeed come with righteous indignation and a sentence of judgment. But what's most surprising to sinners like us who would seek to hide from and evade this God, who would think this God to be the last person we'd want to see, He actually comes with grace and promise as well. And this is all what we want to look at and consider this morning. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word in Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19. And as we hear, let's listen with open ears and open hearts, with reverence and rejoicing, because this is the word of our God. Genesis 3, 8 through 19. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You can be seated. Well, as we consider the fall of humanity last Sunday, this Sunday, we obviously see the fallout from the fall. We see the consequences of humanity's fall into sin and our rebellion against God. And there are two main sections to this fallout here. One we find in verses 8 to 13. And the second we find in verses 14 to 19. In the first section, we see the seeking and searching of God after a fallen humanity as he comes to meet us and confront us in our sin. And in the second, we see his sentence upon fallen humanity, rendering judgment for our rebellion. And we'll take these two sections, just one at a time this morning, looking at the seeking and then at the sentence. First, the seeking. Our text begins in verses 8 through 10 with, The Lord God seeking out the man and the woman. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Adam and Eve do precisely what you would want to do when seeing your, your friend while driving his car bedecked in his things coming up the driveway, right? They, they hide. Of course, they, they had sought to dethrone God from their lives and instead they, they opened themselves up to a world of shame and guilt. And this shame and guilt is leading them to be afraid of and want to hide from the very presence and gaze of God. Now, this is humanity in our natural state now. Right? You, you know, it's not entirely uncommon for some, even for some Christians, to suggest that humanity just naturally seeks after God. But from Genesis 3 on, we see the opposite is actually true. We, we don't seek for God as human beings if left to ourselves. And of course, you, you, you might say, in some sense we do, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into our hearts. In some sense, our, our hearts hunger and thirst and ache for the divine and for transcendence and for eternal things. As human beings, we, we are not by nature atheists, right? And yet, tragically also, as Paul says in Romans 3.11, no one seeks for God. We're not God-seekers if left to ourselves. Instead now, that, that hunger and ache for, etern- for eternity actually leads us to be idolaters instead of God-seekers. We might not be atheists by nature, but we are idolaters by nature. And so from this point on, if we are to know God, He has to be the one to seek us because we're not seeking Him. And that's precisely what He does here. He comes, God comes and calls out to the man and to the woman, and yet they they hide, which is really rather pathetic. It's certainly meant to seem pathetic to us. They're trying to hide from God behind some trees. It reminds me of just when I play hide-and-go-seek with my three-year-old. She might try to hide under a bed or something, you know, and half her torso and all of her legs are, are hanging out. She's got her eyes covered and, and, and closed, and she thinks she found a really good spot. It's kind of what this is meant to look like to us because, because you cannot hide from God if he is intent on finding you. As Martin Luther put it, Adam and Eve are so stupid here to think that they could hide from God when iron walls and mountains could not save them. No, you see, God is all-knowing and everywhere present. Do not confuse his asking questions here as if he is lacking information. He is asking questions here to draw the man and the woman out from hiding and into repentance for their own sake. But this God knows all and dwells everywhere and therefore does not lack any information as to what's going on here. You can easily read the the words of King David in Psalm 139 and, and know there's no way that could be true. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. In short, David says, everything about you that there is to know, God knows. 
Everywhere you go, God is there. You cannot hide from the piercing and penetrating gaze of God. You cannot hide from Him. He sees you. He knows you. He sees you more clearly than you see yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. Your sin is no mystery to Him. He reads your thoughts like a book. He knows what you feel when you feel it. Those actions you think you keep secret, they have been witnessed by the very eyes of God. You and I and all of humanity are found out this morning, and there is no place for us to hide. Adam and Eve, of course, begin to feel the unease and discomfort of that very reality settle upon their hearts as God seeks them out. And so they resort to the next best thing their minds could contrive. They resort to a device we're all familiar with. As all of us have, 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 have used the same in order to ease this discomfort of our own shame and guilt. While God seeks Adam and Eve, they seek to shift the blame. Verses 11 to 13 tell us that God responded to Adam. Who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the, the woman whom you, you, you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what, what, what is this you have done? The woman said, this, it was the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Now we, we find here a, a, a far cry from Adam's words in Genesis 2, don't we? In, in Genesis 2, Adam beheld his wife as beloved and sang out, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is, this is my bone and flesh. This is my flesh and blood right here. But here he just calls, the wom- the, the, he just calls her the woman. The woman. And instead, instead of taking responsibility for his own sin and folly, instead of rightly confessing his sin and crying out to God in mer- for mercy and repentance, he places the blame on his once beloved wife. And what's even worse is he begins to place the blame on the Lord God too. He says, it's not my fault. It was this woman. And now, come to think of it, You're the one that gave her to me. And this evil man lays blame upon the God who is in no way the author of evil. And as the Lord turns to Eve, her response is no better. She says, I was tricked. I was tricked by that nasty serpent that you created. Of course, all these things they're saying are true in a way, right? Aren't these things true? Didn't God give Adam the woman to be with him? And didn't she give Adam the fruit? And didn't the serpent deceive the woman? All of that is true. And yet it's not the whole truth, is it? J.I. Packer once said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. And indeed, the, the whole truth would be to say here that Adam and Eve, they, the whole truth would have been to say, we have rebelled against you as our creator and Lord. We have sought to be God instead of you. We have rejected your generous lordship over us. We've rejected life and communion with you, and yet they don't say that. They won't say that. 
Instead, they pass the buck on to anyone but themselves, onto Eve, onto the serpent, even onto God Himself. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. I remember reading a book some time ago by Dr. Timothy Dalrymple, who works as a doctor in a prison in England. And at one point in the book, he begins to, to discuss this common theme he sees among his prisoner patients failing to take responsibility for their actions. He writes, as a doctor who sees patients in a prison once or twice a week, I'm fascinated by prisoners' use of the passive mood and other modes of speech that are supposed to indicate their helplessness. They describe themselves as marionettes of happenstance. He goes on to give specific examples. One involves a man who is in prison for murder who said to Dalrymple at one point, it's just my luck being here on this charge. And in fact, he went on when questioned by the doctor about this statement to, to blame the victim. He had the audacity to say about his murder victim, well, if he hadn't been there that night, he wouldn't have been stabbed. And the very way he, he describes in this example the, the stabbing is to say, well, the knife just went in. Another prisoner was there because he had been caught committing a series of burglaries against churches in London. When exploring why the, the burglar had targeted churches, Dalrymple wondered if maybe there had been some bad experience with church, a church somewhere. The burglar was trying to avenge himself against those who have wounded him, but that wasn't the case. It was just that churches typically were overly trusting and had poor security. And in fact, the man actually blamed the churches for his crime, saying it was their laxness in security that first caused and reinforced his compulsion to steal from them, and that church authorities should have known of his proclivities and taken the unnecessary measures to prevent him from acting upon them. Another burglar actually demanded from Dalrymple one day to know why he was so prone to stealing. He'd been caught repeatedly breaking into houses and stealing v VCRs, which is, for you Gen Zers, it's, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it's, well, he thought he was owed an explanation involving some buried psychological secret that would explain his helpless compulsion. When Dr. Dalrymple refused to examine the man's past, the man shouted, well, something must make me do it. The good doctor responded, how about greed, laziness, and a thirst for excitement? The burglar responded, what about my childhood? And of course, we can look at these burglars and the murderer and Adam and Eve, and we can easily see the absurdity of their blame shifting, their refusal to take responsibility for their actions. But my friends, this is a trick and tactic that every one of us have engaged in in some way or another. Of course, you know, we all engage in it as children, don't we? And those of you with young children will have undoubtedly seen this instinct at work in them even from a very young age. But even as we grow up, we do it even if in, in more sophisticated ways. Who among us have not blamed our deplorable actions, our hurtful words, our putrid patterns of sin and selfishness? How often have words like this come out of our mouths? I didn't mean what I said. I was just having a rough day. Well, the reason I, I, I treat my spouse and my children like this is just the way my parents raised me. I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have done that or said that, but I was under a lot of pressure at work at the time. 
I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm addicted. These neural pathways are etched into my brain. You know, I wouldn't have looked at those images. I wouldn't have flirted with my coworker. I wouldn't have cheated on my spouse if, if, if my spouse had just given me the attention that I needed at home. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I hurt you, but that's just how I am. My Enneagram number is fill in the blank. Sorry, I, I normally don't act that way, but my hormones are, are just out of sorts right now. Words like that, blame shifting. We all resort to it at some time or another, in some manner or another. And of course, there might be some truth to each of those statements and others like them, just as there, were, there was truth in Adam's and Eve's words here. And if we can be lucid and honest for just a moment, we know that those are not the whole truth. Facing the whole truth would necessarily involve us facing the fact that we are far more broken than we want to be. That we have rebelled against God and seek to be God in His stead. The whole truth is that we are living right now as if we are at the center of the universe and the reason we say and do and think vile things is because God and others are encroaching upon our deification projects. The reason we yell and fight and lie and cheat and hurt and lash out and plot and gossip and slander and do all of the awful things we do as human beings is because we are seeking to be God and others are just getting in our way. And what's more is we hide and shift and blame because we'd rather cover up the truth and face it ourselves or have it exposed to God and others. This is how broken we are. And in response to this, God, God must judge. He must hand down a sentence to, the, to those who have committed cosmic treason against His kingship and glory. He would not be just if He failed to judge. And our God is not just. He is good and just and holy. And so He hands down next the sentence. And here in verses 14 to 19, the Lord speaks to each person present here in Genesis 3. First to the serpent, then to Eve, then to Adam. And what we see here is something of an explanation for why, as Danny Glover put it for us last Sunday, everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. We see the sentence and the sentence of God, why our world and our lives are all topsy-turvy, all helter-skelter, filled with struggle and difficulty and suffering and sadness and sickness and ultimately death. And the explanation begins with a word of judgment upon the serpent here. Verses 14 and 15 say, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now you notice here, the serpent does not get questioned like the man and the woman do. And that's because God, God's not seeking to draw him out of sin and into repentance like he is with the man and the woman. 
And furthermore, the, the serpent has a curse pronounced directly upon him while the, the man and the woman have curses pronounced on their relations and vocations, not on themselves directly. But then this curse upon the serpent here concerns and involves us nonetheless. Because our destiny is wrapped up with his destruction here. We see in verse 14 that the serpent is sentenced to slithering on his belly and eating dust. Now, obviously, the the Lord had created snakes already, right? And snakes slither. And so this this is no new development in the anatomy of snakes here in Genesis 3. However, the snake's slithering comes to possess a new symbolic significance, Uh, Similar to the way, you know, the rainbow wasn't created anew in God's covenant with Noah in Genesis 9. However, it came to possess a new symbolic significance as a sign of the Noahic covenant. And just so, the snake slithering on the ground here in the dust comes to have a new symbolic significance as it relates to God's curse on Satan here. And what is that significance? Well, each time we look at a snake and see it slithering on its belly and licking the dust of the ground, as it were, we're to remember that Satan's humiliating defeat was promised here in Genesis 3. Verse 15 foretells this ongoing war between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring, this ongoing rivalry and conflict. And this serpent will indeed bite at the heels of God's people and wound us and harm us along the way. As one commentator puts it, he says, the Bible shows examples of how down through history humanity has endured his attacks. He afflicts Job. He cripples a woman for 18 years. He tempts Jesus in the wilderness. He is is even busy in churches. We live in a world where his enmity is to be expected, and the picture of a snake slithering and vicious illustrates this vividly, but he is ultimately doomed. Which is what 3.15 shows us here. You see, because as, as he bites at our heels, his head will ultimately be crushed under our feet. In a kind of poetic justice, while, while here the serpent prevailed over humanity in Genesis 3, humanity will eventually prevail over him. While his rebellion against God began in pride, he will eventually meet humiliating defeat, and yet not without great difficulty, not without humanity being wounded by him in the process. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But next the Lord pronounces his sentence upon the woman. And again, the the curse is not pronounced over her directly. Rather, it's pronounced over her relationships. And the relationships directly referenced here are family relationships. And yet, I I think it's safe to assume here that really all human relationships are spoiled as a result of the fall here. This is just a sampling of the greater brokenness we see in every human relationship. The first thing the Lord says, though, is that I will surely... Multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And of course, to begin with, this obviously speaks to the pains involved with pregnancy and birth. Pregnancy and birth obviously involve much joy and blessing. As many of you know, it also involves much pain and sorrow and hardship as well. Bringing forth children, of course, is... It involves more than just pregnancy and birth, right? Bringing forth children also means raising them and launching them into the world, doesn't it? 
And just so the whole process and endeavor of raising children beginning here comes with so much heartache and hardship, so much worry and toil. One of life's greatest joys is now beset with innumerable troubles. And not just parenting, but also marriage. The Lord says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And admittedly, this can seem like kind of an obscure sentence to us, right? Some Christians have sometimes thought that what's being discussed here is is male leadership in the home, while part of the curse involves a wife's submission to her husband from here on. And yet passages like 1 Timothy 2.13 and Ephesians 5 would show us that a husband's loving leadership and a wife's glad-hearted submission was actually part of the creation design from the beginning, not a result of the fall. And so something else must be happening here, and it seems to be this. The woman's desire being contrary to her husband seems to involve her desire to rule over and dominate him. And that becomes clearer when we see the same words being used in Genesis 4-7, where the Lord warns Cain and personifies his sin, saying that his sin's desire is contrary to him and will seek to rule over him in a domineering kind of way. And just so, A wife's desire being contrary to her husband here seems to indicate that she will desire to rule over her husband in a similarly kind of domineering way. And then likewise, rather than offering loving leadership in the home, it seems that part of the curse will also involve the husband seeking to do the same over his wife. He'll likewise seek to rule over his wife in a domineering kind of way, and you'll have two people trying to rule over one another in a domineering kind of way, living in a state of conflict rather than complementarity like we were designed to have from the beginning. In other words, just as the serpent's curse involved the start of a cosmic satanic war, so this curse involves the start of a civil war in households and really in all human relationships. And if you really think about it for a moment, the punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? In fact, when you really start to think about it for a moment, you really begin to see a very important characteristic often involved in the Lord's judgments for sin. You see that he he often does not impose some sort of unrelated judgment upon those who sin and rebel against him. Rather, as Romans 1.24 puts it, he simply gives us up to whatever it is we've actually chosen. And that's just so here. In in taking of the fruit of the forbidden tree, we're not Adam and Eve vying for supremacy, for godhood. Were they not seeking to enthrone themselves and deify themselves? And is that not what's at the root of this conflict here? In seeking to rule over one another, aren't they merely seeking to live like their gods? To live as if they're at the center of the universe. The punishment fits the crime. As the Lord God simply hands us over to what we've chosen in the first place. We have conflict and quarreling in our marriages and in all human relationships because we want to be God and everyone else is just getting in our way. And then lastly, the man receives his sentence. And here we find a curse laid not just upon our relations but upon our vocations. And again, the the punishment fits the crime here. Adam ate of the fruit of the the tree that was forbidden to him, and, and now his work to provide for his eating 
will involve much difficulty. And again, Adam himself isn't cursed. Rather, the Lord says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here, just as the woman's sentence pertains to all human relationships, not just marriage and parenting, so here the man's sentence pertains to all work, not just that of farmers and gardeners, even if that is the kind of immediate application. Indeed, the ground is filled with thorns and thistles, and those who work the ground for a living find their work frustrated by weeds and crop failures and droughts and all various other kinds of difficulties. And yet all of us know, all of us know intimately what it is to have our work thwarted, don't we? All of us know our vocations and callings to be filled with frustration at times. Of course, we should be clear that Genesis 3 is not where we find the creation of work, as some have claimed. Genesis 1 and 2 is where humanity was commissioned to cultivate the earth and develop culture and form and fill the created order and work and keep the garden. Work existed before the fall, but now it's frustrated by the fall. Work sustains this, this enduring dignity even while it is frustrating. And while most of us will not know the frustration of literal thorns and thistles in our daily work, we will know the frustration of figurative thorns and thistles in whatever vocations we find ourselves in. All of us know the, the frustrations of things like unnecessary meetings, unclear expectations, unrealistic expectations, overly heavy workloads, work injuries, difficult customers and clients, complex bureaucracy, team conflict, office politics, job insecurity, workplace discrimination, inadequate compensation, broken machines and technology that just doesn't work right. And to top it all off, the, the simple monotony and boredom that any job will eventually bring if you stick with it long enough. Putting food on the table involves putting up with much frustration. And then here's the kicker. After a long life full of frustration and difficulty in parenting and marriage and in work, you're going to die. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You're going to live a life full of frustration, and then in the end, you die and return to the dust from which you were made. That's life in a post-Genesis 3 world. It's very encouraging, isn't it? Now, what are we to make of all this? What might these words and truths be communicating to us this morning? Well, for one, they're calling us to relinquish, to, to relinquish the idea that life will be easy and without sorrow. You know, one, one of the, the benefits and uses of Genesis 3 is that it helps us construct a biblical worldview and have a, have a realistic worldview. Understanding the fall and the curse, it's essential for us as Christians because it helps us understand something essential about the world we live in today. 
Of course, we, we began our time in the book of Genesis seeing a world created without sin and suffering and fallenness and frustration. We live in a world that has been originally beautifully and wonderfully designed by a loving and glorious God, and that is still true. And yet we, we also need to understand and expect this world now to also contain much conflict and frustration and hardship and difficulty and suffering because it is a world now marred by human sin and under the sentence of God's judgment. And that might not be a very encouraging thought for us this morning. But it is a helpful one. Because here's something I've learned about myself and others, particularly those of us who are on the younger side of things in life. Is that many of us live with some delusionally unrealistic expectations about how life is supposed to go for us in this world. Some of us sometimes operate with the mindset that life ought to be easier than it actually is. We often think our marriages shouldn't take as much work as they do. Or that our parenting struggles ought not be happening. Something must be wrong here because parenting shouldn't be this hard. Our, our struggles seem unique and particularly hard and unlike the difficulties that other parents face. Or that our jobs, our job, my job must not be right for me. Because I'm meeting with so many challenges and difficulties or I find them boring or, or whatever else. We need to understand that Christians operating from a biblical worldview will know that none of us live in an ideal world. None of us live in, a world, in the world as it's portrayed in Genesis 1 and 2. None of us live in the world as it's ought to be. None of us live in the world as it's often falsely portrayed for us on social media. We are going to encounter all kinds of frustrations, the, the kinds of frustrations we've seen and talked about this morning and many more because that's life in the real world, the world as it is and has been since Genesis 3. We need to come to learn to expect and accept that reality. Because, you know, I, I remember a while back reading an article in the Harvard Business Review by a woman who, who in her research, found that that many people, most people who experience burnout in life and work and the rest of it, most of the time don't experience burnout as a result of their having too heavy of a workload or too busy of a schedule. Rather, it typically comes from having unrealistic expectations for how life should work and having those expectations continually, repeatedly disappointed. Here's what I'm saying. One of the things you can do to increase your contentment and resiliency in life is this. Stop expecting life to be, to be easy because it won't be. Start expecting life to be hard, really hard, because it will be. And if you expect it to be hard, you'll be better prepared to meet its challenges and difficulties with grace and grit when they come because they will come. But that partly just begins with us having a realistic view of the world and relinquishing the idea that our lives will be easy. But even more than that, I would encourage you to remember. Have a realistic view of this world and relinquish the idea that life will be easy so that you'll be better equipped to meet its difficulties and distresses. Yes, but lift your eyes beyond the troubles of this world and remember, remember that you have a Redeemer. And as you remember that you have a Redeemer, let your life be filled with delight and durability to face 
this world's difficulties and distresses. And you know, there's a promise and reminder of our Redeemer present in our very text this morning. There's a promise and reminder right here in our text that the difficulties and distresses of this life have their expiration date that the serpent will be defeated, that the curse will be reversed, that sin will be overcome, that life as it is now will not always be, and that's all promised here for us in Genesis 3.15 in God's words to the serpent. Even in God's first words of judgment, he gives a gracious promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his ear. Here, the eventual and inevitable defeat of the serpent is promised and with it, the defeat of our sin and the cessation of our sentence and all in the offspring of this woman. Of course, we would be remiss if we didn't say that the word offspring here in the Hebrew is a a collective singular. That is, it's talking about all of God's chosen people throughout all of human history. As a people, we will be at enmity with the serpent throughout all of human history. This is part of why life is hard, and particularly the Christian life is hard. But there is one picked out from among us, referred to here simply as he. He will crush the serpent's head even while the serpent will bruise his heel. He will prevail and gain victory over the serpent even while the serpent wounds and injures him in the process. And of course, this is foretelling none other than Jesus, our Christ and Savior this morning. Right here in the very beginning of our Bible is set forth the promise of God's new covenant of grace that while we would not seek our God, While we would rather run from him and hide from him and seek to evade his presence altogether, just like in the beginning here, he has come after us and sought us out, not to judge in Jesus, but to save. Jesus says of himself in Luke 19, 10, I have come to seek and to save the lost. God himself has come and he has put on human vesture. While we in our sins sought to become like God, he in his grace has become like one of us because while we would never seek him in our shame and in our guilt, he has come to seek us in his sheer grace. And what's more, in his coming, he has come to destroy the works of the devil, Colossians 2 tells us. The devil would have us far from God and rebelling against God along with himself and thereby ashamed and guilty and afraid, but Christ has come to redeem us. He's come to bring us back to God to cover our shame and to take away our guilt and he's triumphed over the serpent in this way by dying on a cross. Indeed, his heel was wounded because he died on a tree to redeem us. But in so doing, He has wounded the serpent's head. And friends, a head injury is much more serious than a heel injury. A heel injury is one from which you can recover and be fine. But his head injury, this head injury will be fatal. And just so, our Lord did recover. Three days after his death, he was raised to new eternal life. While he tasted our sentence of death for us, he reversed the sentence by rising to new life again. And that's just the beginning because he will one day return to finish the job. And on that day, Romans 16, 20 tells us he will crush the serpent's head under our feet. 
meaning that our lives will not always be like this. Life will not always be filled with hardship and struggling and suffering, all ending in death. There is a time coming when all of the sad things of this world will become untrue. There's a time coming when thorns and thistles will no longer infest the ground, as the Christmas hymn puts it. There's a time coming when we will never again be at odds with one another in human relationship. There's a time coming when the earth will bring forth its abundance and not lack in scarcity. There's a time coming where we will again dwell in God's presence without a whiff of shame or guilt and fear. And that day is coming when Christ comes again to crush Satan once and for all under the feet of his beloved people. And so what's left for us to do? Last R, repent. Don't hide from God. He has come to seek after you in his grace Come out from your hiding and run to him. Don't blame shift. Confess your sin. 1 John 1 tells us when we confess our sin, rather than try to hide it or cover it up or shift the blame to others, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. He has come for us. He has come for you. He is willing to embrace you with his open arms because he is a gracious and kind and redeeming and renewing God who has come to seek and save the lost. Repent and believe in him. Keep on repenting and believing in him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. the way that you wisely expose us. But that you expose us, Lord, because you're generous and kind. You're not interested in merely treating the symptoms of our sin sickness, but you want to go to the very core of what is wrong so that you might be, bring healing and redemption and grace and forgiveness you meet us in our human condition in the way that we precisely need it. We pray that you would impress these truths upon each human heart here this morning. And that as we come to the table, we would be refreshed and assured that you are God. That you are good. That you are seeking us. That you are our Savior. Remind us of these realities and give us hope and delight and durability in all of the midst of life's difficulties because of them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.